This is Foreign, Domestic and Forbidden, a podcast about books and ideas. I'm Tim Tresh. And I am Joaquin Lobo. And we'll be your hosts for the next hour. Joaquin, how are you? I'm excited. This is our first podcast. I have never done this before. And it just feels so timely and so pertinent to have the opportunity to talk about books and ideas that are forbidden, domestic, foreign, because, you know, that's kind of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm totally, I'm super new to this. So we'll have all kinds of technical glitches, re-recordings. <laughs> yeah, so um, as you heard, maybe by our accents, we are on the foreign side of things, too. Uh, we both live in Northern California, but uh, we haven't always lived here. And the idea was kind of to bring foreign books, foreign authors, or domestic authors who write about all things foreign, international, uh, into our podcast. To address issues and ideas that I'm sure we're not the only ones who are feeling kind of restless about and curious about. Um, this is a time where we're really asking a lot of questions. We teach. I think we can say that we're both professors. And I think that's something that uh, we deal with in the classroom and at the cafe, even if the cafe is virtual these days. And uh, we really hope that, that you can find in our words an echo of some of your own restlessness. Yeah. Let's jump right in. Uh, what are you actually reading these days? Was the one book that sits on your nightstand or that you schlep around the house? I'm, I'm reading Chinese fiction, a lot of Chinese fiction, because I designed a class uh, last year on Asian fiction and film. So one of the authors that I really, really uh, been following closely for the past couple of years is Yu Hua who is famous for a book he wrote back in the 90s, I believe. It's called To Live. And the book was adapted into film by a major, major Chinese filmmaker, kind of the Steven Spielberg of China, Zhang Jimu. Um, the film was very successful, the book was very successful, but the book was, was banned upon publication in China because it addressed a lot of uh, issues that Chinese have been dealing with after um, Mao uh, came to power in the 1940s and the Chinese had to go through, you know, the Curly Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And Yuhua was addressing a lot of that, maybe not in a political way, but I guess that some people were not pleased about some of the depictions of those times in the novel. And I found that Yu Hua, who was born in 1960, so we're about the same age, is someone who works at many, many different levels in very different modes that really appealed to me. He's super dark. I love dark authors. He's just such a magnificent writer. Um, you know, I can, I can talk about 
maybe not now, but eventually I would love to recommend some of the titles of his books. Um, Chronicles of a Blood Merchant, Brothers, that has been incredibly successful in China, and a collection of essays that I really, really love called uh, Ten China in Ten Words, that talks about the canon in China. Uh, he he goes back to one of his favorite writers, Lu Xun, uh, with whom he had a very emotional relationship when he was growing up, and he recently rediscovered. Um, and you know, this is kind of the national writer because. Chairman Mao Zedong made him the national writer for many, many years. Uh, so Yuhua, you know, is in constant dialogue and conversation with uh, writing and the ideas presented by Le Xun in his works. So that's where I am right now, looking for clues to my own questions and identity in, in the voice, in the mind of a Chinese author. Even though I'm not Chinese, I am actually Mexican. But, you know, I think that I, I, I feel that keys to my identity are in many, many places, not necessarily in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Cool. How about you? What are you reading these days? It's funny. Uh, in the maybe past year or so, maybe the last two years even, reading has become for me a really, really slow affair. I'm mostly reading books that I can only read in very small chunks. Uh, I used to devour books. I would lie down on a couch and just read and hours later I might be done. But nowadays I really read in these tiny chunks and, and I'm looking for authors that that throw me things that that are harder to digest. I'm not really looking for a totally immersive experience anymore. So currently I'm reading Manuel Vilas's uh, Ortesa, and he's also my age, and so <clears throat> I'm in slightly advanced age, middle age, golden age, whatever you want to call it. And his book, um, among other things, is an investigation into who his parents were, who seem to have taken really an unspoken effort in hiding their existence, of not leaving a trace, of not really becoming visible to the world. They had friends uh, in their small town, all that, but uh, anything personal, any history, um, any motivations, ambitions, all that always stayed hidden. And after his parents' death, the narrator, who is the author in, in a complicated way, is looking for his parents and trying to piece some of their lives together, keeping the ghosts close to him. And and it's funny because I, I read him in every other page. I'm like, no, that's not the case. That's not how it works. And I'm sometimes really pissed off at him almost. But um, it's it's such a thoughtful and super honest way of presenting how he feels about things that 
I always come back to it, even if it sometimes give, gives me nightmares. And and so I really love reading that. But again, it's it's in these small chunks. I read maybe half an hour, and then I have to chew on that and and work through that, and then I can read more. It's a it's a very long and drawn out process, and I've been reading it for maybe two months already. That's a really really interesting way of reading books, Tim. I, you know, I, like you, I I used to read books in two or three days. And now I don't do what you do, but I abandon a lot of books. Oh. I get distracted. And I used to feel very guilty. <laughs> you I, should. Well, I, I, I grew up sort of, probably this has to do with the way my, my mother read books. Um, I had to finish a book. I could never not finish a book. It was a kind of commitment I had to make with a book. So obviously that that made me feel guilty all the time because I didn't have the patience or the love for a story and I decided not to finish the book many, many times in my life. And uh, one thing that I sort of reclaim for myself now that I'm older is that, you know, I'll, I'll read on my own terms, and I will make those decisions myself. Something else that I found very interesting, what you just said, Tim, is that you're reading this novel that is autobiographical. Does that make any difference in the way in which you're approaching this story? Um, the author is putting photographs of his parents into the book. Wow. And something that that I've seen happen a few times now, uh, most notably in in Zebald's fiction. Absolutely. Um, and but I've seen it also in other books, and it's it 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 breaks sort of the illusion of fiction. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's not a fiction. I mean, it says it's a novel. And I don't know what kind of liberties Vilas has taken with the subject matter. I don't even know if the locations that he names in Spain are really the locations of his life. But it always feels as though the line between narrator and author is is a very thin one. And, and it does feel autobiographical, but I have no idea. He uses, I mean, he uses the names of places, of people that he knew, um, that knew his parents. So, so I'm not sure what he added or what he left out. Um, but to me, that's also not entirely important because the questions he raises or the relationships he dissects always feel entirely entirely real and and I don't need to know whether they are real or not um, because they describe lives that even though I didn't grow up in Spain but that I recognize from having grown up in Germany and certain lower middle class particularities ways of thinking about life um, things of making yourself disappear into the fabric of a smaller town uh, those i recognize and so 
to me it's 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 not really super important whether that's entirely non-fiction or fiction um yeah seems immaterial yeah but i i don't find that uncommon that writers um have to resort to their own lives and to their own experience to to tell the story. I mean, we do that all the time. Uh, you made me remember, because I have a this kind of interesting relationship with writers from Spain. I don't really have a lot of affinity for a lot of the things that uh, Spanish writers tell me. But there are a few writers that I really love and admire. One of them died recently, uh, Juan Marce, and he's the one that you made me remember now because he talks a lot about growing up. Uh, he was from Barcelona. Uh, he was a Spanish-speaking uh, writer who wrote in Spanish as a Catalan. And that's something that's, you know, currently an issue in Catalonia. Uh, been a very, very heavy uh, insistence on um, a more nationalistic approach to, to, to Catalonian letters and, and arts and, and civic life and so on. But Juan Marce grew up at a time when um, Spanish was uh, the lingua franca of, of Spain. And the way he, he talks about that, those those childhood years is just so rich and so beautiful and so complex. I don't even know that you can do this anymore these days. And he was very unique because he he just painted this entire panoramic of life in Spain during the Franco years that made it, even though it was so, so foreign to me in and to my experience of growing up in Mexico, I'm younger than, than Marce was, but I just felt that it was familiar. And I, I, you know, I rang with him to the streets of Catalonia when I was reading him in, in my bedroom in Mexico City when I was a kid. But the, the sense that that was autobiographical, the sense that it had, you know, aspect that were very, very closely related to real life. I think that kind of made a difference to me when I was very young. Mm -hmm. Later on, as I became a more sophisticated writer, I think that that became secondary. But I remember that as a young man, that, that was very important to me, feeling that that was real. It gave more authenticity to the book. Now I don't buy that anymore, right? I think that now... I, you know, if I read Elena Ferrante, for instance, I don't care that the book is talking about, you know, the real Elena Ferrante in the streets of Naples when she was growing up and, you know, she was doing all these amazing things or trivial things with, with her friends as a child or as a teenager. But back in the day, that sense of authenticity made the experience of reading very, very enjoyable. Yeah, no, I agree. And in Vilas's book reminds me, even though not, the form is very different. He's a poet mainly, and and I think you can sense in your language, even in translation, that the approach to language is a very different one from a prose writer, from a pure prose writer. Um, but it reminds me very much of Paul Auster's The Invention of Solitude, where he traces 
the life of his dad, who was also to his own family, this shadow, this person who was there, but not really there. And, and I always remember this one anecdote in the book of <clears throat> the family having moved from one house to a new one, and his dad being so absent-minded that after work, and that's several months after they had moved, after work he drives to their old house thinking they're still living there. And even though all the furniture is different, all the curtains are different, he walks into the house, which miraculously isn't locked, just walks up the stairs into the bedroom, lies down on the bed, which is a new bed, a different bed, and sleeps, falls asleep. And, and the family who has moved into their old house discovers him and apologies are being made and all that. But he never realized his surroundings. He didn't pay any attention to what was around him. And so both books kind of try to explore who the parents really were, what their relationships were, uh, how they defined themselves. And, and in both books, there's always this question of why did they stay invisible? Why did they hide? Why did they not want to be known? And why did they keep such a distance from the people who were supposed to be closest to them? I find very interesting this idea of going to the house looking for something that maybe will always remain uh, elusive and invisible. Uh, maybe behind this impulse that sometimes we have of writing stories that deal with their childhood, um, there is this permanent longing or desire to find that thing that that cannot be articulated and that still you need to 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 find that reminds me of the book the very very famous book by garcia marquez uh, 100 days of solitude did you know that the working title for that book was la casa the no. house and if you read the book and you know like most of us have i think that's a book that's been widely read uh, and then you learn that the working title for this book was La Casa. It kind of makes sense to think that everything that Garcia Marquez is doing in that book, of course, is built around the, the idea of this, of this house in this village in Macondo, the house that ends up being destroyed, devoured by, by the ants at the end of the book. But it kind of makes sense to think that you have to go back to the house to look mm -hmm. for something. Mm-hmm. The house has, you know, as the womb, the house as a cave, the house as the refuge, as the place where you sleep and eat and dream and make love, and you know, the place where you where you where you have nightmares and and, and when you uh, learn to walk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I feel that there there comes a point when you grow up that you feel so orphaned, that you feel so lonely that maybe it's not uncommon for writers to go back to try to make sense of that, to try to look for that thing that 
disappeared long, long time ago in the house of your childhood. Yeah, although to me, I had like for 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 many many years, I had nightmares um, about the first house my family lived in that I could remember. We had lived somewhere else before, but I don't except for one or two sort of weird, blurry images. I don't have any memories of that space. But to me, this this sense of home or the house has always been a very fraught and slightly intimidating and dangerous one. I love to rent places. I love the ability to move. I love the ability to say, all right, after a year, I'm out of here, I'm going somewhere else, um, I can take whatever I own in a suitcase or two, and then I can go somewhere else. To me, place has actually always been very intimidating and frightening that I get sucked up by a place. And so, so houses, even though they do afford us a sense of security, safety, steadiness. It's kind of houses afford us this illusion that life continues, that there is actually continuum and that we don't die the next morning or the next afternoon. They also come with a lot of baggage, with a lot of weird dark holes and in forbidden rooms and and corners, images where stuff happened that we'd rather not think about. And so this this moving part has always been much more important to me, um, not to think about what happened, but would, but maybe about what will happen next. And I, I have to remind myself that along with the idea of the house as that mythical lost womb or that cave where everything started we also in literature we also have the very frightening um, image of the house as a haunted space full of yes. ghosts and i think that it's very difficult to find only one kind of house one one kind of cave i believe that nightmares um, fear and terrors are also part of that of that narrative of growing up you know, these days I really cannot go back to the house where I grew up without feeling, knowing that there were many instances of unhappiness that don't bring back uh, good memories. Tim, this conversation about the haunted house also, of course, uh, reminds me of the house, and I think this it's a little bit going back to, to Macondo and Garcia Marquez. Macondo as a place that represents the idea of a nation, and that's why in Latin America this book is so important, because Macondo, you can find it in Mexico, in Argentina, in El Salvador, in Colombia. And, and I, I, I doubt that the Latin American reader doesn't read the book with this sense of Macondo as their home. And I will even say, when you read uh, Garcia Marquez in, in the Middle East, when you read Garcia Marquez in, in, in China, etc., etc., I'm sure that people relate to this story very much in the same way. Uh, but what happens when you leave that Macondo, when you leave that house, when people like you and I, who are 
immigrants, expats, however you want to, to call it or however you identify yourself, what happens when you leave that house, house behind and that house, that big home, that nation, that country becomes, you know, in your memory, a different kind of house? Is it a haunted house? Is it a, you know, a place of of nightmares, a place of longing, uh, and a place that you idealize in your memory? I don't know, how would you, you know, think of yourself in terms of, of the house that you left behind when you came to, to the United States, when you came to America? Yeah, to me, it, it felt very much like a, like a haunted house. <laughs> so the, the whole question of immigrant, expat, and anyone said that usually when Americans go abroad, they see themselves as expats. But <laughs> when people come to America, they're called immigrants. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I feel that I'm happiest when I'm strange to a place, when I'm the stranger coming to town. And I can observe, I can rent a small place, I can stay in a hotel, the metaphorical hotel or the real hotel, and I can take part in things without having these tight family connections, these these deeper connections to the place that to me always end up in nightmares and horrors. And I don't know why that <laughs> why that always happens, but 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 to me, being a traveler and and looking at new places, um, picking up on how people in that place live their lives, interacting with that um, is so joyful and and so beautiful. Like learning a new language, that whenever it gets kind of too close, or when it becomes routine or when you start not seeing things anymore because you've seen them too many times then I always want to move on and so so the houses I leave behind usually feel kind of haunted <laughs> um, too many memories too much me there uh, I just want to go on and go somewhere else see something new um, lose myself you, you make me think of a life on the road. I visualize you driving across a big expanse, the American planes stopping for a while and then moving along, checking things out. That would be lovely. That would be lovely. And, and ideally, I feel I would just like to live in any kind of country, like for a year, half a year, two years, and then move on, that would be fantastic. I would totally love that. Yeah. It's not really viable. And and I'm also kind of getting more getting maybe lazier and and love my creature comforts maybe too much. But yeah, just just to move on and, and find new spaces, find new houses that you then can leave again. Because this weird attachment, oh you have to stay there now. You have to decorate all the rooms you have to fill up your garage and with with all kinds of crap that you never needed and uh, that to me always feels very 
just too close to too much too much stuff uh and and it and it ties you down i'm I'm really like a big believer in that anything you own will in the end start to tie you down and so this not owning things um feels feels kind of very right i mean i'm i'm not really like a hundred percent there i do own things of course because well you need plates you need a fridge you need all these things but i don't enjoy them that much i don't enjoy my possessions all that much um and it's nicer to just leave it behind go somewhere else go to thrift stores start anew this the starting out feels always the most exciting to me you make me think that um i i also dream of going away one more time i've done that several times before in my life um i left my place of birth to come to to california to the hotel california many many years ago and let me be corny but this is a true story the day i arrived at the san francisco airport decades ago and i crossed the bay bridge on my way to berkeley california the radio was playing hotel california and that, that was just pathetic and ridiculous but that was the case but you know uh going again somewhere else leaving everything behind like i did 15 years ago 14 years ago when we moved to argentina thinking that we would stay in argentina forever didn't work out that way we came back getting ready again emotionally psychologically for the next big getting up and going away is just such an exciting sort of integrating thought i i can't wait i can't wait i just don't know uh unlike you who have this you know incredibly detached relationship with objects and with things i just don't know how much i could leave behind i'm kind of attached to my books i'm attached to my art to my paintings you know to to photographs um and i you know i would have to sort of reassess what kind of relationship i want to keep with stuff for the rest of my life what could you not live without do you think well, I always thought that I had to have my book. So when we moved to Argentina many years ago, I took thousands of books with me. And it was ridiculous because it was very expensive. It was a container full of stuff, furniture and this and that, and, you know, kitchen stuff and all kinds of things that went all the way to to Buenos Aires. And then I ended up, when we came back, with did the same. I brought pretty much everything that I, almost everything that we took to Argentina. And I, I was just hitting myself on the head thinking, this is insane. I'm bringing these books that I never read, that I will never read. What am I doing? <laughs> Carrying all this dead weight with me. Yeah. For some people, books are sacred and you shouldn't talk about books as just a stuff. But, you know, books are stuff. A lot of books are just dead weight. Do you do you keep books around? Do you do you like to amass books? I, yeah, I like I like to have books. Yeah, but, you know it's something that I never question. I never had to question that relationship, mm-hmm. except for this occasion when I found myself 
carrying back and forth from country to country hundreds, thousands of books that that probably, you know, uh, were just that, that way. How about you? In my younger years, I, I tried to have as many books as I could, and then I realized that I, that I don't enjoy rereading books. <laughs> I'm, I'm, there are maybe five to ten, but ten seems way too high, actually. Five, well, five to seven books, I think, that I have read more than once and maybe two or three more than twice. But I don't like watching movies really again that I watched. I do that very rarely. And and I don't enjoy reading books again. Even though I, I notice from the few exceptions, for example, Paul Auster's City of Glass, I read when I was in my early 20s. And it was a very strange detective story to me. And then when I read it again 10 years later, and I was back in university, I noticed that, oh, wow, this is a text about literary criticism and theory. That was that was great, because I really discovered an entirely different level to the book. But by and large, I'm, I'm fine not getting to the next layer of the book, but take the layer I'm willing, I'm, I'm able to get at the time I'm reading it. And so I noticed that I don't like the books around. They're these weird ghosts of things I've read. And um, I moved so many times in my life that it was not really possible to constantly move with all my books. And so by and large, I have the books that I've read in the past year or two, but the rest I try to give away, to give to other people. I don't like them. They seem like sort of grimy ghosts. They're they're hanging there, dead, unloved, and I think I feel like you uh, make me feel guilty when they just sit there. Speaking about sort of old books and rereading books, have you by any chance rediscovered a book maybe recently that you felt very strongly about and were like oh wow there's something cool there that i didn't know happened in here where you kept maybe you have kept it around like a like an old friend i can think of a couple of books i had many many novels um, by john steinbeck that i haven't read I taught a while ago The Grapes of Wrath, and I thought it was a magnificent book, really well written and important for many reasons, especially, you know, if you if you are in, in a place like California, the idea of going west and surviving and migrating and avoiding starvation for your family. I mean, all those components of the great American narrative, right? looking for the opportunity, looking for the dream, etc., etc. So that was an important book back in the day. But other books that I had that I never read, I, I started reading uh, Of Mice and Men. And I, I'm just amazed at the simplicity, the apparent simplicity of the story and the ability that Steinbeck had to, to draw and to, and to say things with just you know a few really powerful traces, and I think that 
I wasn't expecting that this time reading reading Steinbeck. I was, you know, probably expecting to be disappointed or bored because I not not many people probably are reading Steinbeck these days. You know, there's probably um, this idea that some authors have become too uh, risky because they force you to enter uncomfortable conversations of race and gender. For instance, uh, Philip Roth, who's being, you know, especially last year in the news with the biography, the famous biography came out and then was cancelled and retired. And, uh, and the way in which you talk about um, certain books or certain authors has become just such a source of conflict that sometimes you're at a loss and you don't know how to approach them. But, you know, I wrote this someone that I reread many times, mostly because I was teaching some of his novels for a while. And in my courses of literature, if I want to teach a book, you know, year after year, and I don't do it for more than three years because I get bored, you have to read the books constantly to remember exactly what's going on and what you're going to be lecturing about. So that was the case where I found myself rereading a lot of books. And Roth was an interesting case because I was constantly forcing myself to rediscover Roth every time that I that I read it. And also, I was noticing how throughout the years, teaching Roth and reading Roth was becoming increasingly uncomfortable and, and risky. How do you convey, in the case, for instance, the human stain, which, you know, talks about the life of a black man who passes for a Jewish man? How do you convey or how do you not enter a discussion on cultural appropriation and things like that when you have a white Jewish writer writing in the voice of a black man? And many of us, I'm sure I'm not the only one, you know, felt that that was a place where if you could avoid it, then you might consider avoiding it because maybe there are better things to to do with your time than to engage in conversations with students who mostly are not sophisticated enough to understand some of the nuances of the way in which fiction was was written 20, 30, 40 years ago. It takes a lot of context. I recently had a small class discussion about um, if we're able to save writers or artists' work from themselves. Because nowadays, what I see as a trend is that we want our writers, artists, everyone engaged in what you might want to call entertainment industry to be politically palatable, to be on the right side of things, to be just, fair, morally upstanding. And when we look at a lot of artists from the past, um, well, they were not. 
Paulo Picasso, Ernest Hemingway, uh, Gertrude Stein, writers that when I went to college and university were still, were artists still admired and taught, become more and more problematic. Uh, Picasso always gets a pass, mostly. Um, I don't think that has hurt his value, the value of his work. But with writers, it gets it gets harder to justify. Well, why are we reading these texts? And without giving a lot of historical context, uh, certain novels like Gertrude Stein's Melanchtha, sort of novella length work. I mean, it's just a racist book. Without explaining what it meant at the time or what the intention of that was whether it was justified or not is a whole nother issue, but without giving the background, you can't save that book. It's, it's just not possible. And so a lot of books that I grew up with and, and loved at the time I read them, I won't be able to use or teach. And even books I feel that have a lot of integrity that are not either anti-Semitic, racist, uh, or punching down on one gender or another, become more and more difficult to teach. Um, one of the books that I have always, or that I always rediscover, is Agota Christoph's The Notebook, which is a really unfortunate translation. It was published in French as Le Grand Cahier, um, which means the large notebook, and that would have saved it from being mistaken for the horrible Nicholas Sparks novel. Um, but anyway, Agota Christoph's The Notebook is about twins in a very small town during what is never named, but is World War II. And the twins think the same, speak the same. They are always in the first person plural, the we, uh, it's never distinguished until the very end who's actually talking, how they come up with decision-making. But it's one of the few books that gives actually its own aesthetic away and explains how it's written because all the entries are supposedly essays the two boys are writing and they have very strict rules on how they're supposed to write, what they can use, what they can't use. But it's an incredibly violent book and everything from sexual violence, other abuse is described in very harsh terms, very open terms. There's no mincing of words. And that becomes really difficult because a lot of my students are not used to that kind of frank language anymore. Uh, or never have been, um, the brutality, the very clear-eyed view of what happens to a small town in wartime. Yeah, the brutality of the language and of what is happening um, is scary to them, feels very uncomfortable and not in a good way. And so it becomes harder to put it on the syllabus and surprise students with it because I feel very strongly that I want to be surprised 
by the books I read. The worst thing you can do is give me a book and tell me what it is about and why you liked it. If you say, hey, I really like this book, you need to read this, it's already dead to me. Right. I want to just give me the book. Don't say a word. And, and I want to be surprised by what it is, whether that's uncomfortable, whether that's funny, whether that's very dark, the darker the better. Um, but that's not a common experience, I feel, anymore. This willingness to be lured into dark spots, into new discoveries, into things that question you, your beliefs, um, and the way you see the world in very stark terms. I always have really bright students, but I also have a lot of students who have a really difficult time trying to understand where writers from other places come from. My students, most of them were born after 9-11. They're very young. They have no idea who Francis Ford Coppola is. They have no idea anything that happened during the 60s, who the beat poets were. I mean, they, they just don't know these things. And, you know, I was shocked at first. Now, I, you know, I think, did I know when I was 20 what was going on in the 40s or in the 30s? I didn't. So I become a little bit more understanding in terms of my expectations. And I don't, don't really, you know, want them to, to have the kind of general culture that I wish they, they, they did have. I understand that that they're, you know, busy with other things, especially now with the pandemic. Our minds are in, in other places and everything has changed. Um, but I, I do worry that there is a kind of narrow-mindedness in a lot of young people who are not willing to, to be more curious about different kinds of narratives, which is surprising because this is also the generation that grew up with anime, who grew up with manga, who grew up with Harry Potter. I mean, most of the narratives that they were exposed to as kids came from other places, came mm -hmm. from Japan, came from South Korea, came from England in the case of, of Harry Potter. But they seem to be unwilling to, some of them, seem to be unwilling to to be challenged in that way. And that creates a very difficult space for us trying to see what are we going to put in there to make them appreciate the complexity of a different kind of narratives. What you just mentioned, the way in which you describe it, just, you know, I'm going to go and get the book right at the end of this conversation. I, I, will, I will try to find that because I, that sounds an extremely appealing story. And I'm not the person who, you know, who uh, will avoid a book just because someone else likes it and speaks highly of it. You know, I, I trust your your judgment, Tim. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel that for many younger students, the challenge is somewhere else. Maybe it's not in dark, complex narratives recommended by older folks, older writers, but maybe the challenge is somewhere else. And I, I can't place it. I, I don't know. I don't know where it is. It could be. I mean, and 
<laughs> to to end this hour maybe on a super dark note um i think the challenges are really what everyone has been talking about the past two weeks um with the climate summit a lot of people have gone uh and at a very young age uh through the great recession they're really living in a place that won't be like it is now in the future i always feel like well you know if if i'm lucky I'm, i still might slip into my grave before the worst is going to come but for people who are in their teens or 20s right now that looks very very different and and the challenge might be something else entirely from social justice to climate change that the priorities are lying somewhere else when i grew up it was most important to me to discover all the things that i hadn't been allowed to read and everything is available now right now from porn to extreme violence like squid game um <laughs> everything is available everything is on netflix uh, or uh, on on the internet uh, there is nothing that is hard to come by you don't have to go to the garage and hope to find an old stack of playboys your dad left behind or any of that it's all there uh, you can access this wherever you are however you want in in all its complexity and so maybe it is not the challenge maybe the challenge is just like yeah how do we make this this planet survive how what can we do in order actually to have a future which gets increasingly dark and improbable because no matter what people say about hope this and hope that um our societies all over the globe they don't do enough we don't do enough to stop anything from happening uh we're not rethinking our lives we're not stopping what we're doing we're not stopping making things from plastic we're not stopping pollution um but we continue with our lives and so that will get us faster and faster into bigger and more severe catastrophes and and to live in that world um is must, is very frightening native digitals who are at the same time uh, members of the covid generation will probably have a very different kind of um need in terms of narratives and in terms of storytelling and i think that's something that we're beginning to figure out there's some interesting examples of what's going on out there in terms of what's successful and what appeals to this generation you just mentioned the squid game i think that's that's very interesting extreme survival um that's not new you know you had hunger games and you had battle royale before squid game and now you know i i used to think that after 9/11 we would be leaning in a very natural way to a uh, post-apocalyptic type of narratives and science fiction was going to be a uh, queen in in the game but now that we entered science fiction uh reality that we went with the pandemic into this entire different 
scenario with climate change and so on, I think that as a writer, the challenge is to 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 remain somehow pertinent and uh, write stories that make sense to readers who, you know, probably will not be looking back uh, with the same kind of understanding of the past that you and I might have. In that sense, there's a little bit of dinosaur, I think, in people like you and I, because we, you know, like it or not, we come from a very different reality with a very different sense of of the future. The future was different for us. Now the future is a very different thing. Yes. And, uh, you know, these younger people are, are probably living with an extreme deal of anxiety with regards to the future and how that affects what they see, what they listen to, and what they read, you know, remains to be seen. But I believe they, they'll still, you know, because they're human, they will, they will need stories. And they will uh, create them or will try to find them. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. And uh, judging by the many post-apocalyptic tales... I see springing up. I once asked a class, why do you like these texts so much? What is it that you are drawn to? And they said, well, we want to know what to do when we get there. And for them it was not an if, but it was just a when. And so the expectations are probably very different. Well, Tim, this has been very interesting first episode I know thank you for listening if you're still there if you made it so this far thank you thank you thank you thank you